Hey Trojan fans, it's time to get into the huddle with the Peristyle Podcast. The Peristyle Podcast is your weekly ticket to USC football and recruiting news. Don't forget, you can download the podcast 24-7 at our website, peristylepodcast.com. And now, here's the host of the Peristyle Podcast, uscfootball.com publisher, Ryan Abraham. Trojan fans, welcome to the Peristyle Podcast on a Tuesday, talking some USC Trojan football as always. Got Dan Weber and Keely Yor on the show today. Introduce them in a second, but if you have any questions or comments, a bunch of ways you can get a hold of us. Podcast at uscfootball.com. That's the email address. If you'd rather call or text us, we got a couple of voicemails to play today. 424-254-9141 is the number, but more importantly, if you have any Apple device, go to the Apple Podcasting app. This really helps the show by posting something on there, a five-star rating, positive review for the show. That really helps to grow it, and we do appreciate when you do that. And we have Keely Yor. You can follow her on Twitter at Keely is my name. She's usually checking those things out because she's got her iPhone out all the time. I don't know if we saw any new reviews lately, Keely. Do we have any, any good stuff? We do, but let me just start by saying, you know, it's going to be a good podcast when the Hello Trojan starts with a voice crack. Always a a good one, Ryan. Did um, I voice but, did I voice crack yeah, there a little? A little yeah. A little bit of voice crack. I had a big workout this morning. I'm like, I'm tired already. I still got a full day. I got we're doing Sean Snyder live on Tunnel Vision tonight. True. If you're getting this, 5 p.m. I got a dentist appointment in between this show and that. And I did a two-hour workout this morning. So my apologies for the voice crack. No, you're doing a great job, Ryan. But we do have some <laughs> new uh five-star reviews. Uh 23 hours ago, actually, CT guys gave us a five-star. Rating said, your podcast has resurrected my interest in USC football, which has been dormant a couple de- decades. Enjoy the dialogue. And Portland Man love us, let, let us, left us in a five-star review and said, the only podcast you need if you're a USC fan. So much content is released every week. You'll have a hard time keeping up with all the news and info. It doesn't get any better. So thank you for that, Portland Man. Whoa. Thank very, you. Yeah. yeah. Very nice stuff. I like that. Uh, good stuff. And we got Dan Weber. You heard him on there. Dan, how are you doing? Uh, doing pretty good. Uh, still not sure what we're, what we're looking at down the road, but, uh, it, it's amazing that in effect, not that much is happening. And yet the news gets your head spinning every single day. I mean, it's like, it's like this absence of news and all kinds of possibilities that are happening are occurring at the same time. And you don't know whether there's nothing going on. Or is there so much going on you can't keep up with it? Uh, <laughs> it it's just hard to know where we are. Yeah. Other, other than let's just act like we're going to play. It's normally crazy covering USC. Now it's crazy covering anything, everybody. And uh, we're we're starting to see some of the bigger American sports rolling out things. We're hearing, you know, who the starting opening day pitchers are. The bubble hasn't had anyone test positive for the NBA it uh, looks like no preseason games in the NFL. We're starting to see some of that. So maybe if those work out okay, we'll get a little bit more optimism in college football. But, Dan, it's normally crazy covering USC. Now it's just covering sports is crazy. Yeah, well, we're we're better equipped probably to do this just because we've had uh, however many years of, of doing <laughs> Hell this. Hell yeah. Yeah, we've day been doing this day forever. Year after year. <laughs> I mean, like, so we're ready. I mean, our heads I, – I probably ought to take that back because our heads – 
probably now are programmed not to be spinning too much because, you know, something's going to happen if it's a new day. Something new is going to happen. I just thought one of the interesting pieces of news, and I think we, we today, I think their second study is out that says there might be 10 times as many people infected uh, by the uh, uh, COVID-19 virus as we thought. Uh, I know there was one maybe a month ago or so that speculated at that, and then now there's another one today. And what that tells me is maybe everybody's looking at the surge in cases, even though, you know, not necessarily in deaths at all. But what that might tell me is maybe originally they just missed an awful lot and they weren't testing everybody. Now we're testing so many more people Maybe it looks like it's way worse than it is. I mean, I'm trying to give it a good spin, which would allow you to say, yeah, there are, they are catching a lot more because we're testing more than anybody or all the rest of the people in the world, and many of whom don't test anymore. So maybe it's not as bad as it looks uh, because we're not seeing you know, any kind of you – know, we're still seeing a big decline in deaths. And so maybe with another month, people will say, okay, maybe we weren't interpreting the data correctly or something like that. And maybe there won't be the same kind of, you know, fears uh, of a surge that we have right now. I don't know. It's just total speculation. But based on the fact that maybe we were only catching 10 percent and, you know, we got through that without everybody dying with, you know, 10 times as many people infected. Maybe it'll it'll change how we understand this, say, in another month. And, and maybe that'll change how we deal with, you know, open campuses or not and, um, and, and playing sports like football or not. I don't know. But yeah, might change things. I like the optimism. Just like Keeley, super optimistic. Try to find the way to make this season work. Uh, exactly uh, like what Keeley did. But, the, I mean, we will see these other sports start. So that could be some positivity. Even Keeley might admit that, right? If you get to see Otani out there pitching on Sundays, maybe you'll feel a little bit better that we could have some college football, maybe? I will say, I did watch the Exhibition Angels game last night, and it was so nice just to have, like, an escape of some normalcy. So I'll, I'll give you that. It was very nice. Of course I want sports back, but... Um... Yeah, it, it would be nice to have some type of thing. But what I've said, you're going to get the negative out of me again, Ryan. But <laughs> <laughs> college is not professional leagues. It's not a bubble. So it just seems harder to me. But I'll I, I'll stop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I do I like do the say, bubble that they haven't had a single positive test. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, you know, that should work in theory, right? Like if nobody's yeah. coming in or out and nobody has it, then nobody should get it. So I, that at least makes sense, you know. And I know people say, well, see, that's the way to do it. The NBA's got it right. And you think, wait a minute. Yeah, you can't do that in other sports. (laughs) That's assuming everybody's a millionaire and you can spend (laughs) half a million dollars a week to put them in their own little hotel and and bring all their meals to them. Uh, Okay, it's nice to see that it's working. It's not a model for anything. No, yeah. It's going to be so unique in that case, yeah. Yeah, I mean, come on. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, before we jump into everything, I do want to thank our uh, sponsor, Trader Joe's. And I had a little Trader Joe's experience over the weekend. Friday, I did a big climb, climbed uh, Mount San Bernardino, I mean, San Bernardino Peak, uh, a little over 10,500 feet. So it was the, the longest climb I've had to date. And it was really cool. But a friend invited me over for dinner afterwards. And it took, I mean, it was eight hours of climbing. And I was pretty tired by the time I got back. And he's like, oh, you can bring dessert. I'm like, uh oh. 
I'm not going to make, I like to make desserts. I wasn't going to, I didn't feel like making anything. So of course I swing by Trader Joe's. I'm like, I know they're going to have some good stuff. So you got to try these sublime ice cream sandwiches. It's really simple on the description. Vanilla ice cream sandwiched between chocolate chip cookies and rolled in mini chocolate chips. They are amazing. I love them. And there was a perfect little thing. If you just want to buy something, it looks so cool. If you're bringing dessert somewhere, I would highly recommend these guys. So four to a package. They were awesome. Ever, they loved them over there for the dinner. So I got my my friend cooking me dinner, but I brought him the uh, sublime ice cream sandwiches from Trader Joe's, and it all worked out. Nice. I'm, get, I'm getting some today. No, yes. I'm on, on my way out, I'm getting <laughs> that, There's me. a real lot of the little mini chips on the side, too. I it's a, Probably my favorite. I mean, I love desserts. Part of my favorite thing is like cookies and ice cream together, like making those ice cream sandwiches. And when you roll them in chocolate chips, it's just it's great. It's sublime. So that's the way that's what they call it there. All right. All right. Well, let's uh, start off. Um, there was some kind of breaking news. I think the L.A. Times might have put it out first. And uh, we, we addressed this in the war room. And by the way, it's a free day on uscfootball.com. VIP act. You get VIP free VIP access today. You don't have to sign up for anything. If you just go to uscfootball.com all day on Tuesday, you will get uh, free access. You can go back to Friday's War Room if you want to read all about this stuff and check that out. We'll have 50% off for the next couple of days, too. So if you like it, sign up. You get 50% off. But Dad wrote a column about this. Uh, I wrote some stuff in the War Room about it. Clay Helton, the tax returns, uh, tax documents came out for 2018 uh, for the, the calendar year 2018. And it turned out Clay Helton made... $4.6 million uh, that year. We all thought we was around a $3 million guy. We had been reporting over the time that he did sign an extension in 2018. We put in the war room several months back that that extension actually was fully guaranteed from what we understood, which kind of that's the reason why the buyout was going to be so high. He signed a five-year extension, and also you would have to pay the entire five years on that. We've also found out that you know, if you're making $100,000 at a company, uh, there's also benefits that are involved that your employer would have to pay. USC's rate for those fringe benefits is about 33.5%. So if you're buying out Clay Helton's contract, you have to add 33.5% on top of that. So then, so the big news that came last week was it's not that he's making 2.5 or $3 million now. He's over $4.5 million. And normally you get bumps up every year in these kind of contracts. My, by my estimation, guys, Clay Helton, 2020, is a $5 million man uh, for USC. So I know that made USC fans uh, pretty upset, but it does kind of gives you a little understanding why they just couldn't get rid of Clay Helton with four years left on his contract, uh, you know, making over $5 million a year. Um, that's all. That's probably $25, $30 million just to buy him out, not including hiring someone else and everything. So the ones, the people that wanted Mike Bone to be able to do that, the uh, the the pre his predecessor Lynn Swan sort of set things up where it was going to be almost impossible to get rid of Clay Helton within the first couple of years of that contract. But uh, Keely, maybe we'll start with you, Keely, and then we'll get Dan's thoughts. I know Dan's got a lot of thoughts. His column was great, but Keely, uh, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, my my thoughts are simple. Uh, we didn't understand it at the time why Lynn Swan did what he did. Now we really don't understand. I don't know where. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, we now understand. Like, no, we do not. <laughs> no, no, we definitely don't understand anymore. It makes it more baffling. Where was the oversight? You know, people, other people had to sign off on this. Who, uh, who thought this was a good idea? If, and now it gives more context to why Lynn Swan coming in at the end of mid-November 
couldn't do what all USC fans wanted him to do. His hands are tied in that sense. So I think it just goes to the fact that Lynn Swan, I think, did more damage than probably any good, I would say. And it just, it, it still doesn't make sense to this day. So hey, take it away, Dan. Yeah, I think the only thing that made sense there was maybe it was easier to do, you know, less trouble. I mean, if you if you don't give the guy a raise and you give it, you know, get rid of him and you got to go through the whole rigmarole of, you know, coming up with a new coach and all of that. And it's so hard to do that when you're out on the golf course. So uh, maybe you (laughs) just go ahead and say, maybe nobody will, you know, I mean, you could justify it. If you went to the board of trustees, you could say, well, this will put him in right at say number 20 of all the, you know, and USC's head football coach obviously should be in the top 20 uh, best paid college football coaches. I don't think there's any question about that. And the question became, should Clay Helton be that coach? And I, I do think it was hard for people to believe it. I looked up the uh, uh, USA Today has the authoritative uh, list of, you know, coaching salaries and all the expenditures of athletic programs, even assistant coaching salaries. And they had uh, – for that 2019 season, the first year under the new contract, they had Clay listed at $3.2 million a year, which was what we had thought maybe he got a little bit of a bump, uh, you know, from 18 to 19. Uh, but uh, uh, no one had any inkling that it went to $4.6 million. It, that's so mind-boggling. We did have a sense that the contract got extended because the uh, because of Andy Enfield's contract and that there was this uh, uh, you know thought that well the uh, USC basketball coach can't have a longer contract than the football coach it made no sense as it obviously doesn't make any sense even now that you've got to extend one because of the other but apparently that's what happened I mean originally our thinking was no matter how much we didn't think Lynn Swan had the skills to do the job as the athletic director at USC, not even Lynn Swan would uh, offer, you know, a 43% raise for someone who doesn't have a single other offer, uh, you know, to coach, uh, or that he would give that person, as far as the extension of the contract, no reasonable person thought that would be guaranteed. Uh, the thinking was uh, people were recruiting against USC by saying, hey, Clay Allen's not going to be there. He's going to be gone. And so at that point, you can extend a guy's contract with the understanding that either side can walk away from the deal. That, you know, Clay could walk away, no penalty, or USC could walk away. That's the only way. And then you can say, well, he's got a five-year deal. But it's really not guaranteed and it's no big deal if you have to let him go the next year. But, uh, you know, for all the people that were mad as heck, all the USC fans that were mad as heck at keeping clay around after those 11 days, uh, when it looked like it was in the balance for Mike bone to decide how mad would they be if they found out USC was going to be paying him 20, $25 million, uh, to walk away. I mean, that would drive people absolutely mad. I mean, you know, there was no win coming out of that. We also heard that there are people, certainly one, who would have underwritten, for example, the entire salary for an Urban Meyer to come in here, up to $8 million a year. But that same person who might have been pushing 
originally to say Brinkley and our, our continuity, we don't trust anybody at USC to hire a new coach. Clay was saying all the right things. We're going to play old style, physical, tough USC football. We're going to run it. We're going to throw play action pass. We're going to be the physical, tough team that USC always was. Obviously, that went by the wayside almost immediately. And the person who might have been on Clay's side originally said, look, I'll get you a new coach. I'm not paying for the old coach for the extended new contract. That's crazy. Nobody would do that. So USC was going to be more on their own to come up with the money to pay off that deal if they walked away from it. And obviously, USC wasn't going to do that. So uh, we are where we are. Uh, we are, you know, they're doing all the things you can do while keeping a head coach uh, the same. And they've changed about as much as you can uh, change a program with the same head coach. How that's going to work, I don't know that we've seen that work anywhere else in the country where you keep the head coach. It literally, everybody that worked with Clay since he's been here, the two athletic directors and every single assistant coach is gone. Clay is the literally the only survivor of the Clay Helton era. It's kind of amazing. I don't know that that's ever happened in college football history where the head coach has survived. Two athletic directors are gone and every single assistant coach is gone. Again, USC leading the way, doing stuff nobody else has ever done. <laughs> that's true. We, there was a lot of talk about boosters willing to do things. And the, the people that I talked to close to USC were saying, hey, there wasn't any big boosters lining up to pay that kind of money for a buyout. And we, I, I just don't think any of us believed that it was going to cost USC 30 or $40 million to switch coaches. And that's looked, that's looked like that's what it was going to cost them. So this, this, according to the sources we've talked to, um, so, so some news last week, uh, we'll see what happens. Today's 2020, by our, our calculation, he still has, uh, you know, assuming he's paid for this year, 2021, 22, and 23, left on the contract. So we'll, uh, we'll see what kind of happens from there. Um, we also got some other news. Uh, the CIF, uh, you know, so California uh, Interscholastic, Interscholastic Federation, I think that's what the, that stands for. It just sounds really weird. It sounds like a space thing yeah. or something. But uh, they've, uh, they're postponing all of the fall sports, and the high school football season will not start until early January, we're already seeing within the first hour, we were seeing high profile recruits, you know, tweeting stuff out about they're going to forego their senior season. Anyone that can graduate early, uh, you can enroll in college basically at the same time your high school season would start. So you don't get to play that fall season. So basically a lot of those players are just not going to play for their senior year and then move on and, and go to college. So they lose out on a whole bunch of reps uh, in high school, which is which is unfortunate. Now, who knows? Maybe college is delayed as well, and then you know there would be more reason for them to stick around and you know play their senior season. So that might change some things too. We just don't know uh, at this point. But it's certainly impacting uh, recruiting. Uh, there's a lot of high school players. It's not just the high profile guys. There's a lot of high school players that need that senior year to kind of show everyone that they might have an offer from like a San Jose state or maybe only, you know, FCS schools and they have a good senior year and then they start getting, uh, you know, F FBS school offers and stuff. So it's going to really impact 
a lot of things. I know, Dan, you want to jump in. We'll get Keely's thoughts well, too, but what do you I, think? I, I was just thinking uh, the flip side of that is say a kid, you know, passes on high school and comes to college. Uh, it looks like even if it was an old, early and enrollee, uh, they would be able to play in the spring in college. Uh, so they might have a choice of do I go to college and try to play uh, my first year there or stay in high school and play uh, in the spring if it happens, if it turns out that we're going to go all spring. Uh, I'm less maybe inclined to think that we're going to go all spring because if the numbers improve at all, I think the SEC is going to go ahead and play. And that might bring the ACC because they play enough games between one another uh, and that, you know, they would both be able to fill out their schedules. It doesn't look like the Big 12 knows for sure what what they what it wants to do. But let's say if if those guys go, I think the Big 10 and the Pac-12 kind of have to figure out how to go in the in the fall even with all the limitations, maybe the conference only scheduling and all that. Uh, so I'm, I'm a little more this week. I'm a little more thinking that maybe they will find a way to, to get this season in, in the fall. Uh, but, but, you know, are schools going to have enough scholarships if some of these early enrollee kids come in and the, um, seniors are still here, uh, is the NCAA going to have to expand, uh, the number of scholarships allowed, uh, you know, for a program. And how will it play out? Let's say if they go in the spring, USC's probably not going to lose as many guys as some schools. I think, you know, they're saying some might lose 10 guys uh, for the NFL to, to get ready, you know, whatever, if there is a combine or, or for the draft if it's kept in April, as opposed to, you know, staying and playing. Uh I don't see with USC, like, you know, the stars, Keaton is a sophomore, Drake Jackson is a sophomore. Uh, some of the seniors probably not going to leave because they're not locked in uh, high enough in the draft. USC might be one of those teams that, like, you see in NCAA basketball every once in a while now in the Final Four, that you've got the one-and-done teams with all the big stars, and then you've got the, the veteran teams where the guys are not, you know, good enough to be the one-and-done guys stay around and that you've got a lot of experience, a lot of toughness, a lot of maturity. USC might be in a fairly good position if they go to all spring. However, if they go to all spring, what happens with the schedules? Do they go back to the original schedules? Um, you know, or do they stay conference only? I mean, there are so many questions. It's, it's kind of mind boggling, but will high school kids be allowed to play if they come uh, come to school now and um, play in the spring or, or if they wait till January and, and come in January, would you be able to come and roll in January and, and start playing right away? Yeah. I mean, JT Daniels reclassified. So he was able to play uh, his, that freshman season. I've talked to some people. I don't think anyone knows. Cause obviously this is unprecedented. I didn't get the impression that people thought if you're a spring, you know, early enrollee, uh, so say like a, a Miller Moss, who's going to be an early enrollee quarterback, he comes in and say USC has some games in the spring, all of them are some, I, I don't think the, from the understanding was that it's probably not going to be, they probably wouldn't be allowed to play, but if, you know, it's a quarterback, it doesn't matter as much, but if you're like a come in and you could be like a special teams guy, return kicks or something, maybe it would. I, I, I think we're going to need an NCAA ruling on that, but I just don't know. 
we don't know right now what would be the case. And and possibly a lawsuit following immediately if if they rule uh, incoming freshmen are not eligible. I mean, really, I, I just think, who knows? Yeah. Uh, Keely, what were your, I know you got a lot of uh, reaction from uh, different uh, prospects uh, that USC's after or committed to USC. What were your thoughts from what you saw on Twitter and all the social media stuff? Yeah, I mean, Dan pretty much summed it up. It's going to be really interesting. You know, guys had already planned coming into this part of the, the calendar to go, go as an early enrollee. And now they're faced with the predicament, do I still become an early enrollee and, and forgo my senior season entirely or do I change plans? Now, we did see Zamari and Gorian, uh, Gordon, the safety commit, uh, basically said a couple hours later, OK, I'm done. I'm, I'm going early to, to USC. He talked to Greg Biggins, apparently Craig Niver. Uh, told Gordon, yep, come come on, keep, don't, forgo your senior season. The interesting thing to me is that I've talked to a lot of guys who are early enrollees when they come to USC, and they've always said that the learning curve is so steep as an early enrollee, and they're glad that they have at least that time to get in before, I mean, other fall uh, entrants come in. But if you are essentially coming to college as a junior with a lot of time off, probably more time than you've ever had off from your sport, how steep is the learning curve going to be to jump into D1 college football? It's something that you definitely have to think about. It is going to be really interesting to see how guys adjust if that happens. And like Dan said, if there is the whole season is moved to spring, what happens to the rosters? Do the NCAA, do they have to expand the number of scholarships you can have? It's just really interesting. And then I know everybody's eyes are on Corey Foreman. He was another guy who kind of left no no doubt about what he plans to do. He was like, I'm I'm headed to my first camp. I'm going to college. So it's really interesting just how the CIF kind of forced guys' hands. And and some guys are very uh, determined to to still be an early enrollee no matter what, even if it means for going their their final season of, of high school football. So it's definitely an interesting wave that that sent through California and how different guys uh, adjusted to it. And will adjust to it in the next couple of days will be really interesting to see. You know, yeah. uh, it's hard for me to see if you've got a chance to go to USC in the spring or stay at your high school, you have to take as much as, you know, it's going to take to get up to speed and all that at USC. That's your goal anyway. And you'd have a chance to be there. It would look to me like where would you be at the end of that spring if you stay in high school? Or where would you be at the end of spring if you stay at USC? It would look like you would be in a far better place if you spent the whole spring at USC. I don't know, uh, but you would think that that, that might be the case. And uh, although, you know, if a kid like Corey Foreman comes out, you think he could play in the spring at USC? <laughs> you think but, he you could? Know, uh-huh. Yeah, but I feel, I feel like we've seen some other guys who even as early enrollees kind of get lost in the shuffle. So I think it will really separate who's kind of ready if they do come as an early enrollee and things are kind of out of whack. It, it'll be really interesting to see. I mean, Jake Garcia tweeted out he hasn't he still hasn't played a full season of, of high school football, which is true if you track his, his high school career. So it's going to be really interesting to see what happens to the development of high school players with this whole wrinkle. Well, you know, I remember just a few years ago when uh, USC had really struggled in spring football. And we were all there the day that uh, uh, JT Daniels and Amon Ra showed up for summer workouts. And from day one, first day they walked onto the field, those two guys were kind of in charge. Uh, they were, you know, they were ready. Uh, USC's offense wasn't exactly ready. 
for them, but they were ready and, you know, they were what USC needed. They actually, you know, got things going. I think for certain kids, they're kind of ready. And um, uh, how that plays out with, with the whole population of, you know, are, are there enough kids who can say, well, I need, if I get two more classes or three more classes in the fall, I'll be able to go early. Our kids going to go there, you know, and say, well, I'm not going to be playing football. So here's what I'm going to do. I don't think we even understand like the scope of that, the numbers that might be involved right now. I, I don't think we have any way of knowing, but uh, it's going to be interesting. That's one more storyline that's going to play out here in the next, uh, you know, next month or so. Plus, uh, if you're, okay. sorry, Ryan, no, if you're not fine. committed somewhere, when do you scramble to get committed? Because not only have you missed like the spring evaluation period, you're not even going to have fall. So I feel like commit while you can, right? You, you, Absolutely. It's, yeah, it's going to be a point. mad dash. It's going to be really interesting to see. Yeah. So the guys that already have D1 offers, they probably want to commit, but it's just, you feel bad for the guys that need it. I think it was, um, I forget, uh, 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 CJ Stroud, the, uh, he was committed to Baylor this time last year. I think, uh, I think, uh, the athletic might've wrote about this and we saw him at the, uh, elite 11. He was really good. He came on late. We, a lot of people thought USC should have got in on him, uh, and did not, you know, after losing, uh, Bryce young, but he was, I saw him, uh, at the, this was the elite 11 down in, in Dallas. He was on. Bryce Young's team, and when they got to the finals, they let Stroud play the whole time and not Young. I mean, he was doing so well. And if if all this would have happened last year, they, the point of the article was Stroud would have ended up at Baylor because that's where he was committed. But he ends up going to Ohio State. He you know he starts blowing up, and you get bigger programs coming after you. And that's kind of a, a, a weird example. It's not weird. I think it's probably fairly common where maybe you're committed to a school that's not as big at any level and. If you had a senior season, you could be committed to a better school, uh, a, you know, more a prominent school. Um, but you're not going to get that senior year to show out. So it's kind of like it's going to make the evaluation process that much tougher. It's just changing a lot of things on the recruiting landscape. And you might see some kids fall by the wayside, but you also might see some some kids that maybe if they didn't have a strong senior year, some schools would have dropped them, but they're going to get a scholarship anyway. Who knows? But it's it's definitely impacting recruiting in a big way. You know, if you want to make a case for uh, how important senior seasons can be, where would Joe Burrow have been had he not gotten to play his senior season? Would he have even been drafted no. after his, his transfer year to LSU from Ohio State? I think you're right. I think that's a no. He went from no to number one by, yeah. se- by playing his senior season. I mean, so... You know, for some kids, they might say, I'm really good enough and I'm going to show it in my senior season. I need to play high school football, too. I mean, you can argue the other side of that case. Yeah. Well, um, speaking of newsy items, this is, you know, usually happens when you're in this kind of a time and we're recording. We have some uh, breaking news. UC Berkeley tweeted out. Campus update. We have made the difficult decision to begin the fall semester with fully remote instruction. Um, so it's, if you read the, the, I read part of the, uh, the, uh, you know, the release and they do want to keep it, you know, open as far as like it could switch to a hybrid more, you know, more of a hybrid model as things improve. I mean, it could even switch a couple of weeks from now, but it's a pretty big step. And uh, Stuart Mandel had a funny tweet. He's like back to back in his timeline. 
Cal Berkeley going online only for fall semester. Texas, quote, quote, only allowing 50,000 fans in the stands this fall. So weird, weird times. I think that was a great, uh, a great tweet. But yeah, for, for the Pac-12, USC's already, you know, shifted from, hey, we're going to have students on campus to mostly uh, online. It seems like there's a little more wiggle room with USC where they're kind of more hybrid to start, where Cal is like going to have the opening for hybrid. I think something similar with uh, UCLA also, but you know, it's not good for these California schools uh, right now. It's not looking good. And if the California schools aren't going to be have, have students on campus, it could be bad for the whole Pac-12. Well, now I think you know why the Pac-12, why Larry Scott said, we're getting ready to go maybe not with everybody. And I had to think that at the time he was looking at the California schools, certainly the state schools in California. I don't know that they'd have any ability to figure out how to do this. Uh, I think it's going to be really tough for them if if they get closed down completely. Um, USC built in the wiggle room, as you said, and in a way you could make the case that, you know, it will be better under the circumstances USC's, uh, you know, set in motion for the football players. I mean, they'll be safer and, uh, you know, you keep testing them, testing them enough and, and keep them safe. Uh, I don't know that you could, you know, make the excuse that you can't play football. Uh, but you know, what does that do for Stanford? They can, you know, like USC private school and a smaller private school, they can, uh, kind of control the environment, but, uh, but I don't know. I think the PAC 12 is, is envisioning um, not everybody being there, which would really cut down the number of games on the Pac-12 schedule, uh, which would be another reason why they had to back off the schedule uh, as late as possible because you don't know who's going to be playing. I can't imagine what it's like to be a football coach at Cal or maybe even UCLA not having any idea. I mean, none, whether you're, even if the Pac-12 plays, whether you're going to be allowed to play. I, I, I can't even imagine how, how that's working. Yeah. I know, Keely, that probably, you're probably not shocked, right? With your, in your no. pessimistic bubble over there. <laughs> it's realistic guys. I'm being realistic. It's worth noting though, that the release says that they're, the Berkeley's open to changing if the virus numbers improve. So there is some wiggle room there. Not sure. It's not, it's not definite, but it sounds pretty definite. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, but that's just another, there's going to be little things like that happening. Uh, you know, we've already had, it's Tuesday. We've already had a bunch of things happen. The PAC 12 canceled their virtual, you know, media days and stuff. So that's, that's a little weird or, you know, postpone it indefinitely CIF Cal, you know, online only. So there's going to be a lot of stuff like that happening. And I think we need some positive stuff. Like we said, some of these sports starting and maybe we see some better numbers and, and we'll kind of go from there. But the, uh, the other thing we want to talk about before we jump into questions, Dan, uh, you did a column on this too. Um, USC, and I did a story yesterday kind of going through all of the point spreads for USC's remaining schedule. So there's nine games left, four home, five on the road. We, we should hear by, from the conference by the end of the month on what they want the scheduling to be. So will they make it an eight-game schedule? Will they make it a 10-game schedule? And add, everyone adds one conference opponent. I don't know. We don't know at this point. But we should hear by, to, from the conference in the next 10 days or so. But there are some benefits to USC playing this conference-only schedule. Uh, I went through all the point spreads. USC is only uh, a, an underdog in one, and that's at Oregon, only by like three and a half points. I mean, they're a favorite in uh, eight of the nine games. The over-under um, was six and a half wins out of nine. 
Um, so you think they're going to win seven that there'd be, you know, maybe losing to Oregon and, and you lose one other game or so, uh, that, that's kind of, you know, makes sense to me. I might put the over under at seven, but six and a half, you know, I, I probably would take the over on that one. I think seven and two is pretty likely and eight and one certainly achievable. Um, but there's some benefits to being USC now, not having to play Alabama or Notre Dame. I mean, you'd like to have that, you know, resume builder stuff, but you know, this might be better for the team. I don't know. What, what are your thoughts, Dan? Yeah. I was thinking for competitively uh, uh, looking at uh, in terms of competition, I wanted USC to be challenged by, Hey, we've got to get ready for week one for Alabama and there's nothing, you know, going to stay in our way and blah, blah, blah. But the more you thought about it, the more you realized, well, there are things going to be in your way. Alabama's going to be able to do things to get ready for that game. You aren't. I thought USC was actually kind of a good matchup. Alabama, and I talked to Alabama people, you know, they're worried about their pass rush. They didn't have one last year. Uh, they don't have the personnel exactly for this year. And they're worried about their secondary, that their secondary didn't do. And, and I thought the matchup was a good matchup for a USC team ready, uh, you know, really ready to play uh, and, and to be challenged and, and, and to do all the things that they haven't been doing in the past uh, few years. However, you give USC a couple of more weeks now because uh, you're talk, talking about backing off the, uh, you know, the opening game at least a week, probably a couple of weeks. That makes sure USC should be able to be ready if everything goes as, you know, people hope, uh, which would allow the season to come down to basically talent and preparation. And I don't think there's any question. I mean, you know, people want to make the ads that, oh, Oregon's been recruiting well. They've got more talent. I don't think Oregon has more talent than USC because they're going with a uh, a new quarterback after four years of Justin Herbert. So. Uh, I don't. I don't know that you could make the case that on paper Oregon's got got more talent, but obviously they were better prepared and they play harder and faster and smarter and all the things that USC when they blew up at the end of the first half against Oregon uh, this year. I mean USC was pretty much in that game, 19 to 14. They give up the 100 yard touchdown the last 20 seconds of the half. And then they get in a big fight in the locker room because they're all mad at one another and whoever else they're mad at. Uh, that can't happen. You know, you're getting, you're having Sean Snyder on. What a change. I mean, this week, who somebody was showing over and over and over again on the internet that 100-yard run by Mikhail Wright against USC that changed the, everything around. And you watch the USC players on that kickoff team and – they have no idea what they're doing. I mean, if you'd have given them all, I said, you given them all 12 foot poles, they couldn't have touched that. They were so out of position and so slow. So not in their lanes. It, it's just embarrassing. I would think that will not happen at all with a Sean Snyder and they changed the entire defense. Um, so, I mean, they, I mean I, the other thing I did last week, I watched the USC UCLA game in total from uh, 2019 and I stopped counting when I got to about 50 missed tackles in that game. I mean, USC would miss three and four tackles on the same play. Uh, that And that's the 12th game of the year. That kind of stuff can't happen. Uh, but if the new coaches and the new approach to preparation and, you know, get rid of mock game week, and we're going to practice this week to practice next week. Practice. We're not going to practice to get ready for the game. We're going to practice to practice. Stop it. 
if they have a mock game in a week this year, uh, all bets are off. But USC is good enough based on this circumstance, uh, you know, to, even if they just play in the Pac-12. Uh, and I mentioned that 2002, back in the day, and it's kind of amazing, USC lost two with that, you know, Carson Palmer, Troy Palomalo team lost two fairly early and really tough games at Kansas State where they dropped the ball a whole bunch in a windstorm and then the uh, overtime at, at Washington State. And they came back, and one of the reasons they could come back is five of their Pac-10 then opponents were ranked. It was amazing. And if you counted Colorado, who they also beat, that would have been a sixth. Uh, that the Pac-10 uh, Pac then, you could just play Pac-10 games and you could be respected because, you know, even after they lost at Kansas State, they kept improving week after week after week in the rankings. And they eventually got, you know, and then they cinched it by beating Notre Dame. But they got high enough. They had to be in the top four in, in the BCS in order to get the, the Orange Bowl bid, which they did. And uh, that kind of cinched that, okay, They've turned everything around at USC. They go on to win, you know, two straight uh, national championships after that. But that was because the Pac-12 or Pac-10 was really uh, respected and challenging. And can they get there just playing a Pac-10 schedule or Pac-12 schedule now? You know, I mean, I thought Cal had a chance to be ranked uh, this year. I think yeah. Cal's got a pretty good program. Are they even going to be able to play? You know, I think Arizona State's going to be able to be ranked. I think it hurts that Stanford and UCLA, the bottom has just dropped out of their two programs. If you see, if Utah can hang on and Washington can hang on, you still got a chance, especially if they double the uh, playoffs. They're talking about since uh, conferences won't be playing one another, that it might not be fair to just have four teams in the playoffs and you could have eight this year. If they go with an eight-team playoff, I think if you go through the Pac-12 or Pac, yeah Pac-12 this year and really you know do your job the way you uh, you know the way you should do if you're USC with the kind of talent USC's got, um, you get into the playoffs. But uh, I think it comes down to as it has a couple of times in the last uh, two decades, it comes down to a USC game at Oregon. And uh, Carson Palmer and those guys uh, ran off 30, uh, 30 straight points in the uh, in the second half against Oregon. Uh, against the, uh, I think they were ranked 14th. Good Oregon team. And then uh, you had the 2011 USC team where, you know, they probably should have been in the playoffs. Uh, you know, or I guess if there would have been playoffs, uh, they were good enough to, to beat anybody at the end of that year. And... Um, and they beat that, uh, beat Chip Kelly's, uh, I think they were also fourth ranked, uh, um, uh, Oregon team. So I think it's going to come down to that, that game and, um, it'll be, re- seem to, you know, will USC be ready, uh, to do the things to play fast, to tackle, uh, they're going to have enough, uh, obviously offensive talent to score the ball. Uh, but, uh, you know, does the new staff change everything enough, uh, and if it does, USC's in actually uh, fairly good shape for a for a fall Pac-12 only season. Uh, so, you know, make the best of what you got. The, the opportunity is there, I think, for USC. Yeah. Uh, any thoughts, Keely, or you want to? Should we move on to uh, 
We have actually a question that kind of dips into playoffs and, and conference only. If we we can start with that. Well, let, well, yeah, let, let's uh, take a quick break. We'll come back and we'll uh, jump over the questions back in a minute. Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. All right, we're back here on the Peristyle Podcast. Yeah, Keely, whatever direction you want to go, let's uh, let's jump in. Let's start off with Dan, class of 1962, who says, Hi, Keely, Dan, and Ryan. Uh, thanks for all that you are doing to keep Trojan fans updated on the mystery of this college football season. This is for Ryan. On a positive note, if the Power of Five conferences go to a conference-only schedule, this would be an opportunity to have all conference champions plus three at-large teams complete, compete in the playoffs for the national championship. Your thoughts? Wouldn't this make the playoff much more interesting across the nation? Fight on and win, Dan, class of 1962. Yeah, so we don't know about bowl games. We don't know about the playoff. There's still a committee. Could they expand it? You know, If you're going to have fewer televis- televised games, would they rather say, instead of trying to decide is like, Oregon at, at eight and one better than Oklahoma at eight and one or whatever it is, or, you know, to to get into the playoff, would they just say, why don't we expand it to six or eight teams? We'll have every conference champion come in there. So tell all the conferences, just tell us who your champ is and they're going to bring them in. And then we'll, we'll at large pick some other teams, you know, uh, whatever criteria you want to do. I think that would be cool. I think it'd be like, you know, it could be a one-off year where you do that. And then, you know, if it works well, then you could say, well, here's a reason to expand the playoffs. So I would love to see that, um, and have, you know, if it's a shortened year or whatever, it'd be more inclusive and get everyone in there. And then you could see a, a funner, more, you know, expanded playoff and you can blame it on the coronavirus stuff. And then if it works well, let's say, let's just keep doing this going forward. And, uh, I think that'd be great. I think what it might be is one of those negotiations with the TV people where you say, could you please, please, please give us as much money as we're signed up for? And you know what we'll give you? We'll give you four, you know, four more teams in the playoffs. And maybe you can split it up between CBS and ABC and, you know, ESPN or whoever's got the, you know, their contract will have more games and, you know, give CBS a game that involves the SEC or whatever. I, I, I could see you know, the college is trying to make some offer like that to the TV people to say, look, we're going to give you more value. We may not give you as many games and, and you, you know, you may not get USC Alabama and you may not get USC Notre Dame, but we'll give you some of these playoff games on the back end uh, that'll, that'll make it worthwhile. My guess is 
some of that kind of talk is probably already happening. Yeah, that'd be good. Any thoughts, Keely? Or well, we actually have another oh. playoff question or bowl game question. I'm just All rolling right. through the questions. Uh, Frank in Las Vegas says, "This is for Dan and Keely. The Pac-12 is going to allow its schools to play only Pac-12 schools in the football e- season. What's going to happen to bowl games in December? If USC can't play Notre Dame at the end of November this year because it's too dangerous, why would it be any safer to play Notre Dame a month later in a bowl game? I get the feeling that that there's no real plan for Pac-12 football this year. The Pac-12 seems to be putting out brush fires as they pop up with no real plan for the season as a whole. Surely, surely the highest paid commissioner in football has a grand plan for his conference for the season. When do you think he will share his plan with us? Frank in Las Vegas. You know, Frank, this may be the first time in history I might even actually try to make a point uh, for Larry Scott. But if you don't know how many schools are going to be playing, uh, you know, if you don't know what Cal's going to do, if you don't know what UCLA is going to do, man, it's hard to figure out what the conference is going to do. I mean, it's it's impossible, to be honest. Let's face it. I would love to see him build in at the back end of the schedule in December the possibility that if everything's going well, maybe USC and Notre Dame could hook up the second week of December. You know, if, if a Notre Dame would just schedule 10 or 11 games uh, to maybe give the ability to do these kind of almost mini bowl bonus kind of games uh, in December, depending on how healthy everybody is, you know, how, you know, if you've only played 10 games, it wouldn't be probably asking a lot, uh, you know, to do that. But uh, anyway, again, a great TV game. Uh, you know, who knows how many fans are going to be allowed. I don't know that California is ever going to allow what Texas is doing with the 50 percent uh, in stadiums. I, I'm thinking that's probably, uh, you know, but who knows? We're talking now, now December. That's a long time from now. And if you know, you've gone through the other sports and they've gradually ratcheted up the number of, of fans. What did I see? Uh, Indiana, uh, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway now is uh, preparing, you know, they're not going to have a couple hundred thousand like they, they often do, but they're preparing for at least 50,000. Uh, and that's going to be in August, I guess. And I think the Kentucky Derby in September, I think they're also looking at maybe uh, 50,000. So, you know, we're gradually inching to a place where if things get rolling and look better, maybe, who knows, by December. I mean, I think it's really going to be hard to make plans in August for what's going to happen in December. Really hard. Yeah. Could you see a, a way that they could do bowl games where if you know who you're playing and you kind of come to an agreement to isolate and hopefully by December you know the tips and tricks on how to avoid your team getting sick or whatnot, you could figure out some type of bowl game schedule? Or is that being too optimistic on my part? Oh, no. I think they have to leave. You know, that you might compress it. For example, uh, the way we have it now, it's spread out over three weeks almost. And I guess at that point you might kind of compress it to 10 days or whatever if you want to allow for more uh, flexibility at the end of the, you know, the regular ski season schedules and give you a couple of weeks in December to do that. You still would have a couple of other weeks to, uh, to play around with the, uh, with the regular bowl game. So, yeah, I think you could, 
I think you could definitely do that. Uh, I think they will. They almost have to, but I don't think they can until they see how are we handling this. Are they having to, you know, postpone games that you thought was going to happen in a, you know, and then it doesn't happen. How are they going to do testing? I mean, I know Dennis Dodd uh, for CBS Sports came out with a column saying, uh, as as uh, you know definitive as the NCAA plan seemed to be, it left a lot of holes. And if you're going to test them 72 hours before, uh, you know, Saturday's game, what does that do uh, for kids on Thursday and Friday who could come down with it for Saturday? Uh, do you have to test Saturday morning? Do you have to test Friday night? Do you have to test twice a week? How much is that going to cost? I don't think we know any of the answers. Do you have to have a testing site right on campus so that you get a, uh, immediate results. You can't wait three to five days. Um, so, again, we keep saying there's so many unanswered questions. Man, there really are. And to try to guess where we're going to be in December, I think, is is absolutely impossible. We still have a few unanswered questions that listeners have sent in. We'll go with a voicemail right now, Dan. Here you go. Hey, podcast. Once again, Rick from Vista, class of 89. Thanks for doing the show. It's very uh, informative. Got a question. I don't, trying to understand why, what the benefit of going a conference only schedule is. Um, you know, is it really, I, I mean, I would think that you're getting the same sort of, um, liability potential, um, traveling to play Alabama as you would be traveling to play you know, at Cal, I mean, at Cal or at Colorado. I mean, they're both, you're both flying out. You're both staying in hotel rooms. Would it be the only difference is the PAC 12 has certain protocol that all um, programs are going to have to follow? Is that the difference? I mean, couldn't they just like with Notre Dame come to some agreement about the protocol? and not to interfere with the Pac-12 protocol. Anyways, I'm trying to understand why that makes, why they'd have to do that. It just seems to me that it shouldn't make a difference. Anyways, thank you very much. Okay, so I think, I think USC possibly for the Notre Dame game, if everything goes well, could come up with, yeah, let's, let's get together because we're coming there next year. You guys come here this year because if USC loses that game this year, they're not going to be able to make it up <clears throat> next year. Notre Dame needs that home game. Uh, so if you lose it this year, you, you kind of lose it forever. Uh, so I think the, the thing that conferences wanted in the conference-only deal was total control. Total control as to protocols, testing, uh, agreements on how many players, if they're sick, when does the game get called off, who makes that call? Are teams doing it for other reasons? Uh, and when is it rescheduled? And you have total control of that situation. If you have uh, non-conference games in the mix, you do not have total control about any part of that, the testing or the, you know, the rescheduling or how do you agree on, uh, you know, how many players you're you can declare are sick or, or whatever, or how much time you test it uh, before the game. I, I, I don't, I think there was, it, there were conferences like the PAC 12 and the big, big 10 that 
you know, we're worried about how would we control that if things start getting a little bit out of control? How do we uh, make sure it's fair and equitable for everybody involved? And if you've got, for example, I don't know that it was a safety issue. I mean, the NCA is recommending now no overnight stays at hotels. I don't think that's going to fly at all. I mean, you, you, I don't think teams are going to fly in in the morning, play a game, and fly home that night. I, I don't see that happening at all. Uh, you know, it might happen that for a mid-American conference where there are a lot of bus trips that maybe you could, uh, you know, say it's a little bit safer than having our guys get on a plane and fly into Alabama for a guarantee game if they just play, you know, Ball State and Kent State and Miami of Ohio. <clears throat> but um, but for the big time programs, it, it, how much difference is there for USC flying to uh, South Bend, Indiana, or flying to Pullman, Washington, or you know, Seattle, or wherever? Uh, there's not much difference at all. So uh, I don't know that it's a safety. I, I think it's strictly a control issue where the conference has complete control of every aspect of of schedules and reschedules and testing and all that kind of thing. Yeah, 100%. And, and really, it's because of the lack of leadership in college football in general. You have to bring it down a level to where you actually have leadership. So the Pac-12, Larry Scott could control whatever they need to do. They can move things around, like Dan said. There's just no one that could do that at a national college football level. So uh, this, it gives the, the conferences a lot more power to do everything in their power to get this move and move the schedule forward. So I think that was Dan hit it on the head. Um, we got our buddy Joan left us a over two minute voicemail. Joan, we, I think we ask you every time. We're not going to play it this time. Uh, time yourself when you try to leave a voicemail because it, you know a minute's a long time. Two minutes is it's pretty long when we're trying to listen to somebody's voicemail. But she says it's a bonfire of the vanities over at USC. It's a billionaire's club between the uh, controversy with the, the chic student that came over and was trying to bribe professors. Max Nikias, the former president, his buyout and home loan. Clay Helton's contract up to $5 million. She said that Carol Fult and Mike Bones' hands were definitely tied with all of the bad decisions that happened before they got there. She goes, I don't like Helton, but uh, she, she didn't think that that uh, Bone had much of a choice. And overall, she thinks the department is doing a nice job. So I know she's been kind of critical of the past, but there's really been a lot of bad decisions that have been made at USC prior to some of this new leadership. So it's like a mess that they're moving into and they have to clean up. Wow. Joan, huh? interesting take. Uh, I do know this had, uh, had president Folt decided to live in the, uh, mansion that was uh, still good enough for Max Nikias. Uh, they could have saved that $8.9 million for that Santa Monica house that, uh, they could have paid for one year of urban Meyer. Uh, uh just, uh, okay. I'm being a little snarky there, but, uh, <laughs> I, I think, yeah, the bonfire of the vanities, I think, is probably a, <clears throat> a good description uh, for for a lot of what USC is, has suffered through. But, you know, it's in L.A. I mean, <clears throat> who was it? Back in the day, you had the corner of the stars and you had, you know, police chiefs and all. I mean, it's L.A. You're going to have stuff like that. That's the way it works. If you're the USC, you're the biggest employer in, in Los Angeles. You know, it's L.A., and that's how things work. Uh, you just can't get them, let them get out of hand. Uh, and USC has, and now they're paying the price, and they've got to get things back in uh, under control to some extent. But uh, uh, that's an interesting take, Joan, that 
you think uh, I, I do think they're doing the best they can in some ways uh, and being realistic as much as they can. And let's face it, they went out and got, I think, you know, they went out on the market and got a lot of really good assistant coaches from everything that we can tell, uh, put together as good a staff and they've upped the, uh, uh, the support staff, the recruiting operations, all of those things. They look like a big time program, like a USC program should be, uh, with the decision still about the head coach, obviously. But, uh, I'll give them that credit that they've uh, they've done a, I think as good a job as you could do with all the way up to the head coach and now you know we all know where that stands. Yeah, and I think that the assistant staff has been great, but also they did it you know at a reasonable price. Where before USC just didn't have anyone in place that knew what they were doing with contracts, and now they do, and so they they got guys that were desirable, but they weren't overpaying for them like they've overpaid for so many people uh, in the past. Um, and buddy, they and they were able to hire away Dante Williams from Oregon, who Oregon really wanted to keep. Yeah, and he's the engine that's driving the USC recruiting train. And uh, to do that, somebody had to know something about how to how to put together a deal. So big, big credit for that. Yeah. And speaking of recruiting train, we had a question <laughs> on the Harvey Hyde podcast that went up yesterday about offensive line recruiting, which isn't going as well as uh, some of the other skilled position players. USC did pick up a uh, commitment from Prophet Brown, four-star. He's listed as a running back, but he's really a cornerback from Northern California outside of Sacramento. Uh, Yesterday, they got five DBs committed. Uh, Dante Williams doing great work. I think he's the number one ranked uh, assistant coach recruiter in the Pac-12, maybe the country. Um, But on the offensive line, Oregon is still doing a much better job uh, than USC, not just the past couple of years, but even in this class. And uh, so we talked about that on the show. And then Curtis from Marino Valley called in afterwards. I'll play his voicemail, Dan, and get your thoughts. Hey, Curtis from Marino Valley. I have a solution for the offensive line recruiting. We should just pay the money for the best offensive line recruiter in the nation, somebody who is already recruiting the best people. He still has all these relationships with the kids in whatever area, and USC will definitely be appealing with this high-flying offense, you know. It's no problem. Pay the money like you did with the rest of the staff. Curtis from Moreno Valley. Yeah, uh, I don't think that's a bad idea, but I think it's it's harder in California to recruit offensive line, harder on the West Coast. That's just not the direction <clears throat> high school football has gone with the seven-on-seven emphasis. And so you get the best quarter. You know, Ohio State comes in here. Alabama comes here. Clemson comes here to get quarterbacks, uh, wide receivers, defensive backs. Uh, those guys are, are here. I think. The uh, the ability to recruit offensive line. I think California, as I remember growing up and all that and paying attention to national college football, California was the first place where you saw really, really athletic offensive linemen, rangy guys, the six 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 seven guys, the Ron Yeris, the uh, Anthony Munoz, Brad but all those guys. They were different looking from offensive linemen you were seeing at other places. California was way ahead, I think, in, in producing those kinds of guys that really drove that 
uh, ability to account of USC to run the football, run the football. And uh, with the emphasis on the passing game and the, I don't know if it's the demographics or whatever, but in the fact that they're really working at it so much harder in the SEC now, uh, you don't see that kind of advantage. But you, which means USC can't make mistakes in recruiting offensive linemen, and they can't miss on guys. They can't get guys in here that they shouldn't have gotten in, and they can't let those guys that are, you know, I mean, the best offensive lineman at Ohio State is from uh, uh, Bosco, I guess, isn't it? Uh, that Wyatt Davis kid. And uh, you just see uh, Alabama just graduated a kid from California who started all four years in the first round draft pick for the Bengals, I guess. And uh, uh, those kinds of guys, USC has to really be in on. They can't miss on on any of those guys. And they got to go to head, head to head with Oregon, who is ahead of them right now with Oregon got there first in terms of the most recent kind of recruiting cycles in terms of saying we're going to have a really great, cohesive offensive line. And USC did not have that same sort of philosophy. And, uh, and again, falls on Clay Helton a little bit, falls on, on Lane Kiffin and, and Sarkey had you know, passing-minded uh, you know, head coaches. And it just didn't seem to be as high a priority as, as it needed to be. And with uh, fewer prospects at that very top level, uh, you know, Oregon's beating them to it. And Ohio State's coming in here and getting getting one every once in a while. And uh, <clears throat> you just can't you can't make a mistake uh, on the offensive line right now if you're USC. Uh, where does that leave in um, you know, a coach like you know Tim Drevno? Um, I think the the decision this year, there's going to be a decision may have to be made uh, at that spot this year. Yeah, and uh, so yeah, like I mean, Tim Drodov's the offensive line coach, obviously, but um, we've seen USC have a surge in recruiting compared to the last couple of years. But you're looking at an offensive line class last year that was six deep, but all of them, you know, there was no one really highly ranked in the top 250 players or so. Um, you know. From a couple of years ago, Penny Sewell uh, you know, ends up at Oregon in the class of uh, 2018. Um, you know, last year, uh, you know, for the kid from Narbonne, Jonathan Howe, like he ends up, you know, a high ranked four star, number 63 player in the country. He ends up at Oregon and they, got, they also had another four star, um, you know, offensive lineman. And, uh, you know, for the class of 2021, USC has. Uh, three commitments and Oregon has three commitments. The USC's three commitments are all, you know, current three stars and Oregon's three commitments are all current four stars. So it's not, that's a trend that, you know, we've seen happen, but it's not necessarily changing either. The Oregon is getting the higher ranked guys on the West coast than, uh, than USC. And I know it has, you know, it's great that USC is getting a lot of great skill players and Dante Williams has helped out a lot with that, but Oregon's still out recruiting USC, in my opinion, on the offensive line. Yeah, no question. They've got the tradition. They've got it rolling. Uh, and USC has to recapture that. And uh, it, it's really, uh, really important. And as much as USC <coughs> was winning Heisman trophies with uh, tailbacks and was this, you know, offensive machine, it was the guys up front that made that happen for, for John McKay and, and John Robinson. And uh, I don't know that there was as much of awareness because there was so much clamor about the, you know, the running backs and the Heisman trophies 
that I don't think it was quite as understood how much of that was being driven by uh, terrific offensive linemen and tough and and it didn't fit the image of USC and you know the all the the glamour and the movie stars and all that the the hard nosed guys that just beat you up uh, and it helped USC in some ways because they'd go play people who had no idea how physically tough and uh, uh, you know they were going to make the game uh, and turn it into. And um, that really helped USC. I mean, they'd go and play Notre Dame and line up, and USC would be the more physical team. And uh, so often, anyway, in that that matchup. And that's not the case right now. And that has to change for USC to become USC that, you know, historically USC has been. I know I always harp on this, but I just always go back to, we just saw, when we saw Ohio State come out and we saw their defensive line, we knew USC's offensive line was going to have a, a hard time with, with Ohio State's defensive line. And how much did keeping Tim Drevno, and no, how much did keeping Neil Calloway, having Tim Drevno as the offensive line coach and waiting as a running backs coach, how much did that put USC back, not only on the field, but on the recruiting trail as well? It just makes you wonder how if there's more decisive action on that front, on the coaching front, would USC get some, some prospects that they didn't get? Where would they be development-wise? It's just, to me, it's it seems like a critical error, and, and it, I feel like it keeps coming back to that. And that, that was right after, so that was after USC got, you know, like 2017 season, USC gets pushed around in the Cotton Bowl, and Clay Helton stands pat. And, and maybe part of the reason why was, and we didn't re- realize it at the time, in February, Dan, he gets that five-year extension fully guaranteed. So there's really no sense of urgency that he needs to, you know what? I should make a change and get rid of Neil Calloway at this point. He didn't have to do it because he just got a full-on extension for five years. He wasn't going anywhere. Yeah, I, I still remember uh, the Notre Dame trip that year. And there was a kid in Cincinnati who had made it clear he wasn't going to Ohio State. And he was he, pretty much kind of in between USC and Clemson. And I do remember that people had figured out, hey, you're going to be in South Bend on Friday. All you got to do is rent a car. He's playing that night. Come down and say hi. It makes a big impression. Impression that here's a USC coach on the Notre Dame weekend and coming all the way to see this kid play. Uh, didn't happen. Kid went to Clemson. You know, just those little extra things that you need to do. That if you're in the game, uh, you make it happen. And USC didn't. And those are things that. You can't miss on. If you got a chance, uh, you really got to take that chance. You got to do everything that that it takes uh, to make that kind of an impact. And USC passed on. You know, I know. You know, if I'd have been one of those USC coaches, I'd have said somebody's got to go down and say hi to that kid. You know, it's going to take you know four-hour drive. But so what? What else are you going to do? Right. On a Friday night before the Notre Dame game, uh, but nobody did it, and nobody said you had to do it. And then you don't get that kid. And, and like with Sewell, how different would things be for USC if they'd have been able to land him? Uh, but those things really, really matter. Just one yeah. guy here and one guy there and guy at Ohio State. I mean, it wasn't that this couldn't be a really top uh, offensive line. I mean, you land those three guys, you might have the best offensive line in the country. Yeah. But, but, but. 
No. Mm-hmm. We got one yep. last one, Keely. Yep. Let's wrap it up with a question from John from Oakland. It's an interesting question he poses. He says, hello, Parasol Podcast. A question for Keely and Dan. Looking at the NCAA COVID-19 guidance released last week, I was struck by this elephant in the room statement. Quote, as published data confirms that the risk of death for COVID-19 increases with age and high-risk underlying medical conditions. Students and student-athletes who are not in high-risk categories themselves may be unlikely to have complications from COVID-19, but they represent a significant threat to any high-risk category individuals with whom they may have unprotected contact. Of note, sports such as football may have an over-representation of student-athletes, for example, football linemen, who meet the high-risk criteria as as it relates to obesity, BMI greater than 30. For this reason, prevention and testing strategies should recognize that some athletes may have an increased risk of adverse outcomes from COVID-19, end quote. Clearly, social distancing and other prevention strategies are not even remotely practical for linemen during practices and games. No one seems to be talking about the significantly higher risk certain uh, the significantly higher risk certain football players face. So do you think it's irresponsible for schools to ignore the danger COVID-19 poses to these specific high-risk student-athletes football uh, football players? Bye, Don. John from Oakland. Yeah, I think conditioning really matters. Age matters way more than the body mass index of, of offensive linemen. I, I really do. I, I just think... Uh, when you're talking about the kind of people that are really in danger uh, from COVID-19 because of comorbidities like overweight, uh, you're talking about people that aren't in the kind of shape that those offensive linemen are in. And I would, I, I don't think they technically fit the category of, of comorbidities. Uh, uh, I don't know that we have any examples of guys in that age group in that uh with that weight as being a factor uh for what you know is going to happen to them if they if they come down with i don't think their outcomes are much different from anybody else in that age group or anybody else on a football team uh that you know that it tests positive for for COVID 19 i just don't see the comorbidity of the additional weight now you know those guys they don't play in the nfl they're probably better advised for the rest of their life to drop uh, some significant amount of, of that weight uh, if they're not going to be pushing around people and they need that kind of mass. But uh, I don't think that they fit uh, the category of, of, of that being a comorbidity. I just don't think it would be. I really don't. Yeah, you know, BMI is pretty dumb anyway. I mean, it's just like <laughs> height and weight. Like you can look at this freaky – Bruce Feldman put, came out with his freak list. You know, you'd see this like linebacker for, you know, that's 260 pounds, like chiseled. Uh, that's like six, three and runs a, a, you know, a four, three forty, and he's considered obese, you know, like it's like, that's, you know, he, cause his BMI is so high because just because of his weight and it doesn't scale correctly with height. There's some weird stuff there, but you know, linemen are carrying a lot of extra pounds and some of it's sort of like fake weight that they're just keeping because you have to be that big. Um, I don't know if there's a correlation, you know, if they would be at more high risk than someone that's like a couch potato that has a BMI over 30, that's not an elite athlete. So I, I agree with Dan. It's not, it's hard to say what happens there. And, and I, you know, I'm no uh, expert as far as infectious diseases go. I try to take in all I can and, and listen to stuff. One of the things I saw was interesting, and I don't know if this came from like a, someone that's more like everything should be open versus close everything person. It's probably more on the everything should be open side, but 
it was a the talk was about viral load. And yeah. even though football is hard to social, you know, to be socially distant, you're not in that close proximity for long periods of time. So if it, they were basically saying, like, if I was to sit in a classroom or in, uh, you know, like a nursing home or something, and you're with these same people for an hour or two or whatever at a time, then you're going to be breathing the same stuff. It's going to be more like the, the, you, there's more likely you're going to get more of a viral load where if I'm like, if Dan and I are like, I'm a defensive lineman and Dan's a offensive lineman and we crash and fall to the ground and move away from each other, even though we're in close proximity, it's really for a short period of time. And it's, the, the the way they describe it, I please apologize if this is incorrect, but the way it was described from this podcast or whatever I was listening to was you can walk outside without sunscreen and bright sun at noon at the equator. And it sucks, but if you stayed out for 15 minutes, you're probably going to get burned. But if you just walk outside, get the mail and walk back in, there's not really a high risk of getting a sunburn. And that that's the way they kind of describe it. So that's what gave me a little positivity. Like, well, maybe you could be, you know, with good masks and stuff you could play football because you're not really close to each other for a long period of time. I don't know if you guys have seen anything like that or heard that too. Yeah. I yeah. mean, I, th- I think the negative is two people sitting in a bar or five or six people standing around at a cocktail party, uh, you know, shoulder to shoulder and everybody talking, no masks, everybody, cause they're drinking and everybody talking and just the viral load that builds up over, I think it's, it's gotta be at least 15 minutes of fairly, you know, concentrated, uh, contact. But, uh, at that point, I, you know, I think you, you might have a problem and I, I do think you would not have that. Uh, I guess if you add it up, well, they're going to probably come up with a mess that is going to prevent this. But if you added up all the huddles in a particular game, you're still not going to get into, you know, 15 minutes worth of, uh, you know, of close contact. And I know the position groups sit together on the bench and they communicate to one another and all that. I still don't know that they quite get to where you're going to get, uh, if you sit at the bar all night, if you're at a cocktail party or whatever, and everybody is just talking for an hour, uh, straight or something like that. Yeah. What do you think, Keely? Cause I know you, you know, I, I want to run this by you. Yeah. Yes, what, what's, how am I wrong? No. Or, or is that wrong? No, I mean, I don't know anything, but I, I, I did see what you're talking about, Ryan, about the viral load, meaning how long you're exposed to the virus itself. Apparently that determines whether or not uh, you're asymptomatic or whether you have really bad symptoms. So I think the key would be having some, tor- some, some type of helmet that kind of contains whatever your heavy breathing could expel droplets wise. And then maybe if you're on the bench wearing a mask still, and you're outside, so maybe that helps as well. So I think that would help. I could see a scenario where you could mitigate the the spread. And at, at some point, don't you think that the whole team itself would be its own little co- cohort I, of of if, if if no one's positive, don't you think that they could essentially have a little bubble in itself? As, as, as this is prior to playing a team, but as far as practices and whatnot, at yeah, some I, point they would yeah go Ryan. No, no. Yeah. I think you're right. It's where like your team is sort of like your family. It's not a bubble, but like try to be as distant as you can, but you're going to be around your team members more. It's really just about playing the other team and that mm-hmm. quick interaction that you have on the field. Is it going to be enough to, that you'd be exposed? Now someone spits in your face or whatever, and they have like, <laughs> it's probably going to happen. But if you, you, you try to do something with the masks, keep it up, but it's really just those quick interactions. Maybe it's a positive that you're not going to be you know, inside the team would probably be a lot easier to transmit it because you're around them all week as mm-hmm. opposed to 
you have a 60 minute game and you know, I hit that lineman like 10 times, but they were like five minutes apart and for three seconds at a pop, like hopefully that's the case where that you're, that's just not enough to get it from the other team. It's, it's still gonna be hard to get it. You know, you're going to get it from your own team if somebody gets it, but to pass it from team to team, hopefully that would be a little harder. Yeah. And if you test enough and you test consistently week after week after week, even if you test, you know, maybe more than once a week, uh, it's going to be hard for it to spread real quickly uh, among a team. Uh, so if they do everything else right. So I think you got a fairly safe bubble, uh, especially once the season gets started. And you've been testing them every week after week after week. And you don't have the whole rest of the campus open. If you open up the rest of the campus, I'm not sure where you go there. I mean, I would think it's going to be tough at, at some of those SEC schools. If they open up the campus in the fall completely, um, keeping those guys in that bubble is not going to be easy. You know, and that's a, it's a funny point. Steve Bartell, who covers uh, Utah for 247, tweeted this out. I think John Wilner tweeted it out to something similar where it actually might be a good thing that Cal is online only and USC is mostly online only. And you see like, because then it's sort of like your athletes, if they're still on campus, they're in a bit of a bubble because there's no other students there. So it sort of protects them where if you go to a school that the whole campus is open and there's fraternity parties and stuff, that might be a lot more difficult to contain. So be no students on campus. If, if football is still allowed to happen, if athletes are allowed back, you could argue should you allow athletes back if the regular student body is not allowed on? But if you do allow that, it might be a lot. It is a lot safer for the athletes because there's less people around. Yeah, I could see the uh, decision makers in the SEC saying, let me see now. We got the football team on campus. Should we allow the students to come back or not? That might screw up the football team. I mean, I, honestly, uh, I do think that discussion might happen in, in some places uh, because – uh, it's not going to be easy if uh, if you've got a full camp. Uh, yeah, I think at USC, if you had a full campus coming in in the fall, uh, it would be hard to be optimistic that you could hold things up, uh, you know, through the whole schedule. But now I think there's room for some optimism, actually. Yeah. All right. Uh, anything else, Keely? Are we good? That's it for this uh week. Okay, well, we got a little optimism today. I like it. We we uh, kind of worked on Keely a little, you know, try to get her uh, bring it over to the optimistic side. Um, we're just kidding. We we love Keely. A little she's, bit. She's trying to be realistic, but uh, yeah. There, but who knows? I mean, we don't know. No one knows at this point. We're just trying to give you, uh, you know, all our all sides what we're hearing, and uh, we we'd love it for there to be a cultural ball season. Hopefully, they can do it in a safe way. But that's uh, that'll wrap things up. Hope you guys enjoyed uh, that podcast. Uh, got a special one coming up later today. We'll put it up in podcast form too with Sean Snyder, like I mentioned. And make sure you check out the deals going on at uscfootball.com. If you get this on a Tuesday, you still get some free access uh, free if you're not a member already. And then 50% off for the next couple of days. So if you're not a VIP member, jump in there. Half price. Uh, tough to beat that. That's hey, Keely Ryan, Ewing. Ryan, before we leave, uh, it was all over the internet uh, this week. And I saw it probably 20 times that 100 yard. Mikhail Wright touchdown run against USC at the end of the first half. Ask Sean Snyder if he saw that. And what did, oh. what did he think of, of the way USC handled that situation? I, I, he may, I mean, very often they'll say, you know, we're not trying to look at the past. We're looking at the future. I just would be interested if he uh, 
if he took a look at that. You couldn't miss it if you were signed on to the internet this last week. It was everywhere. So uh, 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 it was Mikhail Wright, right? Mikhail Wright, hundred yard. Uh, Twenty seconds left. USC was not down nineteen fourteen. They just scored on a Keaton Slovin touchdown pass, and there was kind of some optimism. Boy, we're ready. Let's go. And then 20 seconds left in the first half, and he picks it up at the goal line, and nobody's close enough. It didn't look like they had eight guys on the field. Yeah, see? Yeah, uh, that's a backbreaker. I'll, I'll, I'll ask about that. Some, I don't think he wants to comment specifically on stuff. Probably but doesn't, but... <laughs> just in general, though, how, how special teams can change a game and mm-hmm. how you have to be careful he, you know i'm sure he loves it when usc or the team he's coaching returns a kick for a touchdown but if you give up one you gotta like hide your head in shame like, that was oh, that like was the me. whole season in one play yeah <laughs> all of last year one play yeah all right well i'll wrap it up keely you're dan weber i'm ryan abraham we really appreciate you listening thanks again for tuning in and we will talk to you next time You may have noticed that shopping at Trader Joe's is unlike shopping at other markets. People ask us all the time how we manage to have such unique, interesting, and delicious products at such great everyday prices. This is Dan Bain of Trader Joe's. The answer is simple. It's all in the way we do business. We buy directly from the manufacturer whenever possible. This helps to keep our costs low, and we pass those savings on to you. No gimmicks, just great values at honest prices. Every day at Trader Joe's. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Peristyle Podcast, presented by uscfootball.com. Be sure to tune in next week for the latest news on Trojan football and recruiting. Don't forget, you can automatically download the podcast directly to your smartphone or tablet for free. Just click the iTunes link on peristylepodcast.com or search for Peristyle Podcast at the iTunes Music Store. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.